we have been we have been in the middle of a series. Listen up. We've been in the middle of a series called uh, Why We Should Believe. And we started the series back in September. We called the series back then Why We Don't Believe. And we covered several different topics that we think cause doubt in people's life. Things like suffering. Questions like how can Christianity be the only true religion? Those kinds of questions that cause doubt in people's minds about the faith. And we transitioned about a month ago. We're now transitioning to the second part of the series called Why We Should Believe. And I'll do a little bit of review this morning before we dump it, jump into today's uh, topic. Um, the first week that we discussed why you should believe, reasons for belief, we talked about the clues for God. We looked at Romans chapter 1, we talked about how um, all of creation points to who God is, and we looked at different clues for who God is uh, through those ideas. Now, I can't cover all that right now, because uh, just for sake of time, but that was week 1. The second week we talked about how um, prophecy points to there being this God, this, this Jesus Christ that we talk so much here about. And uh, we talked about prophecy that week. We also talked about the problem of sin last week. We said that no other world religion has an explanation for or a solution for the problem of sin. And so today, that brings us to our topic for today. And here's our topic for today. It is religion versus the gospel. Now, before I unpack what that means, you have two discussion questions there on your sheet. So go ahead and discuss questions one and two. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, let's get some feedback on these two. Um, the first question, if somebody asks you what's the difference between the religion and the gospel, how would you respond to that, that, that question? What would you say? Anyone? Okay, excellent. Excellent way of saying it. She said that um, religion is more about what we do. And the gospel is about what Christ has already done for us. Well said. What else? Was there a hand over here? There was. I predicted it. Yes. Okay. So religion can be changed. Okay. So you're saying that religion basically can be shaped sort of in our image. Like if we don't like certain things, we just kind of pick and choose what we want to choose about it, right? Okay. So they can all be interpreted differently. Okay. What else? Other differences. I think the first answer was so profound that everyone's just speechless now. That's really what it was about. And so anyway. Um, now, number two, actually meant to be a, a difficult question because um, there are sometimes when I'm up here uh, asking questions that I know, like, it's not that I think y'all can't handle it, but I know you're not going to quite know what I'm talking about. So whenever I actually can answer the question, you go, oh, that's the answer to that question, okay? Then I feel really smart, and no, I'm kidding, not, not that part. Uh, but here's the, the second question. How might this difference be evidence that Christianity is true? So basically what, what Kim said over 
over here was that um, the gospel is based on grace and that um, religion is based on our works. So how can that um, be evidence for that Christianity is true? Let me go ahead and, 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 and say this thing before I get into that. Let me answer question one again real quick. Go to the next slide. Um, real simply said, I know that this morning, for many of you, will be like just a review. You're going to think, I already know this stuff. But I want you to see, as we unpack this idea this morning, how I think as a Christian, we so often live out religion. Even under the name of Christianity, we still live out religion and not the gospel. Okay? And so we're going to show you at the very end of today's talk how this happens in your life. So pay attention as we talk about this today. Don't think it's something you just already know and you're already there because you're not. Believe me, I'm not there. Uh, Religion is salvation through moral effort. Really simply said, it is working our way towards God. It is this idea that, yes, something is messed up with us, but I've got to somehow correct it myself and just try real hard to fix it and hopefully earn favor with this God. That is religion. The second thing is gospel. Gospel is salvation through grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means that God chose to enter this world and he chose to enter our lives based on his grace, not based on our works. Now, we teach the gospel all the time here at TBC. But I kid you not, I talk to high school kids all the time, and in my conversations with them, I will say things like this. So, when did your faith become real to you? Or when did you become a Christian? And I will so often get this response. Well, I'm, I'm really trying to be one. Or, I'm, I'm not really sure I'm a Christian yet, but I'm, I'm trying real hard. I think God will accept me eventually. I've been in baptism interviews with kids where they have been in this church their entire lives and they still don't understand the fundamental difference between Christianity, the gospel, and religion. They don't get that. And so I am hammering this into your head today. So get ready, okay? Now, you might ask the question, okay, how does this prove anything? How does this prove that, um, that Christianity is true? Let me explain this to you. No one would have invented the gospel. No one would have made up this religion that basically is based on us being sinful and evil and horrible people at our core. Okay? So in order to become a Christian, you've got to admit some things about yourself that are really hard to admit. Right? That you're a sinner. And no one would have invented that religion, right? Every other world religion is about how we can earn our favor with God, we can make ourselves look good by our works. That's every other world religion. Christianity is the only one that is about God coming into our world, God extending himself to us through his grace. And to become a Christian, you have to admit some really difficult, hard things about yourself to become a Christian. I thought of an analogy uh, this past week for this. Um, I took my uh, external hard drive into Best Buy uh, for the Geek Squad. Um, anybody here work for the Geek Squad? Just before, before I say what I was about to say, you do not want. Really? You're just kidding. Okay. You're joking. Okay. Because I'll still tell my story anyway, either way. 
So I go into Best Buy, and these guys are great. Um, but I love their name because it's so honest, right? The Geek Squad, right? Like you've got to actually, like even even their 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 file that they uh, they give me whenever I left. This is hilarious. This is the file that they give me after I it doesn't work for me. And it says on the front, it says, warning, this folder contains sensitive intelligence information. And it says, um, recently declassified, agent secrets revealed inside. I'm going, this guy's serious? Like, this is hilarious, right? Saving the world one computer at a time, 24 hours a day, your place for hours. Okay. Um, so... These guys, this whole idea of the Geek Squad, okay, it's basically to be a part of the Geek Squad, you have to admit some things about yourself, right? That you're a nerd, that you're a geek, right? I love such an honest name as that, all right? Now, when you think about this, you can also say the same is true of, have you seen those books, like, um, really, anything for dummies or anything for idiots? Um, you fill in the blank, like, computers for idiots or computer for dummies. I love the honesty of those titles because you've got to basically admit you're a moron before you buy the book, okay? You've got to get to that place. Now, the same thing is true of Christianity. You've got to admit about yourself that you're a sinner before you become a Christian. You cannot come to Jesus and say, okay... I like Jesus, I love the idea of the cross, the resurrection, and I'm going to try real hard to be a Christian. That is not the basis of your faith. You've got to admit some things about yourself before you even become a Christian. Namely, that you're a sinner separated from God. That is fundamentally different than the, West, the rest of the world's religions. Completely different. Completely different. So there you have the Geek Squad. That's what they're all about. Now, today we're going to look at um, Luke chapter 11. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses uh, 37 to 44. And again, I'll tell you that as we discuss this idea this morning, Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37, as we discuss this idea of religion versus the gospel, many Christians know the gospel, but very few live out the gospel. And you'll see how this plays out. Luke chapter 11. Here's what uh, Jesus says in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. We'll explain this kind of verse by verse so you know what we're talking about. Now, the first question that some might have is, okay, who's a Pharisee? What's a Pharisee? The Pharisees were basically Jewish teachers of the law in the Old Testament or interpreters of the law. So it was their job to stand in front of people and teach, much like I'm doing right now, but also to interpret the Old Testament for the Jewish people and teach them what the law really said. Now, the only problem with that was many of them completely misunderstood the purpose of the law. You see, many of the Pharisees thought that they were saved by obeying the law. But here's the thing with the law in the Old Testament that they didn't know about, didn't realize. The purpose of the law in the Old Testament was not to obey it so you can save yourself, but it was to show that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. 
And so the idea was that God gave them laws to reveal to themselves that they're sinners, so that when Jesus shows up, they, they, they can say, Oh, yeah, I need a Savior. That's why you're here. But instead, what they did is they saw the law as a way for them to earn favor with God, which meant that when Jesus showed up, they saw no need for him. And you see this play out throughout the Gospels. They, they fight with Jesus all the time, and Jesus fights back with them. Now, their idea that you obey the law to earn favor with God led to all kinds of legalism, led to all kinds of rule-making, rule-creating. These guys got creative with how they thought up rules. Um, let's say, for example, uh, the, the law that says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, which is a good law. What it meant was, honor God, worship God, understand Scripture, read the Old Testament, study it, have it taught to you. Spend a day to worship God. Okay? They took that law, keep the Sabbath holy, and they said, okay, well that means we can't do any work. Now, let's define work. Alright? Let's say um, your donkey is walking along next to you, and, uh, and your donkey falls into a hole, which I guess could happen back in that day. Uh, if your donkey falls into a hole, it would actually be work to pull it out of the hole, so let's just leave it in the hole until the next day. Let's just let it suffer. Or how about this? If somebody needed money... And they're a beggar on the street, on the street. To reach into your pocket and pull out money for a beggar on the street would be considered work. So we can't give money to beggars on the street on the Sabbath. This is how ridiculous they would get. If your family is cold, if your family is cold and you need a fire and it's the Sabbath, you are not allowed to kindle a fire on the Sabbath because it is work. Just let your family be cold for, for all they care. You have little kids? Well, let it be cold. So you can see how they took this idea of the Sabbath and making it holy, and they would build what's called fences around the law. Okay? They would basically say, okay, here's the law. We're going to build extra rules just to make sure that we don't violate the law of keeping the Sabbath holy. Now, I want to tell you how we do the exact same thing today. I can think of several examples. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is just the idea of, of drinking. Okay, now, this is a tough statement because obviously you're high school kids and, and I don't think y'all obviously should be underage drinking. That's an obvious thing. So in our culture, underage drinking is sinful, is wrong, it's against the law, making it, making it sinful. But there's also people out there that will say things like, it's a sin to have a drink after you are 21. They'll say that it's an outright sin. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says don't be drunk with wine. The Bible says don't get drunk. It doesn't say you can't have a drink, obviously, if you're of a certain age. So what people do in our culture is they build fences around the law. They add to Scripture. Another example would be um, tattoos. Another one. Uh, I've heard people say things like, well, the Bible says that you're, you're God's temple, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore, um, that means you should never get a tattoo. Well, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It doesn't say you can get a tattoo in the Bible. Now, you can argue that it might be unwise to get like a tattoo of a dragon on your face, okay? That might not be a good idea just because 
job interviews, you know, I mean, stuff like that. You have to get married eventually. She may not like that, all right? So you can say that it might be unwise to do certain things. If you have alcoholism in your family, it may not be wise for you to take a drink, maybe. That might be a decision you need to make. But to then say that this is a law that God has placed on us, that is a pharisaical thing to do. That's what the Pharisees did. There's all kinds of examples of this. Um, I've heard some Christians say things like, you know, we only listen to Christian music in my home. Now, that's fine. That's your preference. That's, That's up to you. It's not like you're sinning if you do that. What I'm saying to you is you can't take something that's not in the Bible and then say, this is a law given by God for everyone to follow, because it's not. Because my question to every family that I've heard say that about Christian music, my next question is, okay, well, do you ever watch TV? Do you ever, um, if you go, do you ever go to an art museum where there's like uh, art that was created by a non-Christian? Because music is really art, right? That's what it is. Now, I'm not saying you should go listen to Eminem with your, like, windows rolled down and, you know, there are certain things you've got to use wisdom about and don't fill your mind with a bunch of junk. I get that. But for someone to say that, that they're just this law that you have to follow and place it on people, that's just completely wrong. There are some people that they buy all their clothes at Lifeway, and uh, they would say that I only wear Christian clothing. I only wear, I only eat Christian candies. If um, this kind of person, if Lifeway sold groceries, they would go there for all their groceries. Okay? That's the kind of family I'm talking about. Alright? So there are these ways that we, we place these Pharisee type laws on ourselves, even in our culture. Now, some of you in this room, I know, are tempted to reject Christianity because of this kind of legalism that you see in the church. And I have good news for you. You feel something in you that says this is wrong, this is not the way it's supposed to be. The good news is, Jesus feels the same way. He does. And you see it play out in how he relates to the Pharisees. Now, um, the question is, why is the Pharisee so surprised that Jesus is not washing his hands? What's the deal with this washing of the hands? Let me explain what this means. I know when you read the story, you think, so Jesus didn't wash his hands. Who cares, right? Didn't they have, like, Purell back then, and they could just, you know, quickly just antibacterialize his hands or whatever? But here's what's going on here. This was not an issue of, like, personal hygiene. It's not like they're sitting there going, oh, Jesus didn't wash his hands. He's going to put his dirty hands in the food. That's not what's happening here. Back then, uh, washing of the hands before they ate, ate a meal was considered like a religious thing to do. And I'll explain what I mean by this. In the Old Testament, it's talked about how uh, the priest would go in front of the tabernacle before he would enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would wash his hands as a symbol of cleansing, as a symbol of cleansing himself of a sin before he entered into God's presence. So the Pharisees thought, you know what? The Bible says for the priest to wash his hands before he enters into the tabernacle. So why don't we just make that a rule? For everyone to do before a meal as well. Then we'll be really spiritual. We'll be, really, we'll be seen as really religious if we do this ritual before we, before we partake of a meal. So it became like this rule that they would follow. And so Jesus walks into the situation. And my question is, do you think he set this thing up? I, I think he probably did. He's trying to expose something in these Pharisees. Okay? So let's go ahead and read on to the, the next uh, part of the passage here. 
Verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. You have questions 3, 4, and 5 based on that part of the passage. Go ahead and discuss those next three questions. Okay, let's discuss this for just a bit. Alright, in this passage, here's what Jesus is basically saying. He's saying to the Pharisees, who cares if you guys wash your hands before dinner, but you neglect the poor? Who cares if you follow this little ritual of, of cleansing yourself before God when your heart is wicked because you won't give money to the poor? You ignore the poor, but you wash your little hands before dinner, so who cares? Who cares if you, if you have this religious piety about your life when you neglect the real needs of people? This is like the guy who um, gets caught up in really stupid debates about theology, but then dishonors his wife, is mean to his wife. This is like, this, this would be like, the analogy that he's using here, this would be like using a cup for breakfast, you know, in the morning I have coffee. So pouring my coffee into the cup, and then saying, okay, the, the cup needs to be washed so I can use it again for lunch. So I'm going to wash the outside of the cup and, uh, and then dry the outside while the inside still has, like, coffee nastiness inside and then use it for lunch later on. This is the logic that you would never use when it comes to washing your dishes, but it's the exact logic that you use when it comes to your own walk with God, Right? You take care of the outside, you pretty up the outside, while the inside remains unchanged by God, unchanged by Jesus. And, and you think that presenting yourselves to God in that way, you're like, look, God, I'm clean. I've cleaned myself up just for you. And God's going, the real problem's inside. That's where the, that's where the sin is. That's where the evil is. And, and only I can handle, only I can deal with that. In verse 41, it's a confusing statement. Uh, when Jesus says, but give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Most of what Christ says makes you go, huh? What? What's he talking about? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that if you give your heart to God, then everything is clean. If you start following Jesus, you give your heart to God, then, then all of your good actions from that point on will be seen as clean to God will be seen as good to God. If you try just to do good works and you haven't given your heart to Jesus yet, you're just doing religion. You're just working your way to God, which leads to pride. Religion is outside in. Gospel is inside out. That's the fundamental difference between the two. The next verse, 42. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. If Jesus ever starts a statement with, Whoa! Like, it's always bad. Alright? If he ever starts a statement that way, the next statement is like a spiritual backhand to the face. Okay? That's what he's saying here. Now, the Pharisees 
What are the Pharisees doing? The Pharisees are giving, they're so legalistic, they're giving their tithe even out of their spice rack. So not just their money, but they look at their spice rack and they go, okay, I've got all my spices here. Um, I want to make sure I'm, I'm totally in God's plan here, so I'm going to take a tenth of, of, of the dill weed out of this deal. I'm going to take it down to the, to, to the priest. I'm going to take a tenth of the cinnamon and make sure, yeah, not cinnamon, right? Make sure that um, a tenth of that goes down to the priest, and then a tenth of, uh, of, of poppy seeds. Make sure that goes down to the priest. And, and so they're, they're tithing literally out of their spice rack. They would debate stupid things all the while neglecting the poor people in their society. So as they're carrying their one-tenth of their spice rack down to the priest to give it to them and look really spiritual, they're walking past the beggar on the street and ignoring him. Just look at the contrast. Look at the hypocrisy of that kind of, of attitude. Now, look at verse 43. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. Jesus is saying that you love the best seat in the synagogue more than you love me. You love how you are seen in front of other people more than you love me. You love to be seen as the religious elite more than you love me. Jesus goes on to compare the Pharisees to unmarked graves. The reason why he did this was because in the Old Testament law, coming into contact with a grave would make someone unclean under Jewish law. So they would put white paint on graves so people would walk around them. So if a grave, But if a grave had no marking, people might walk over it and be unclean without even knowing it. So in the same way what Jesus is saying, he is saying that following the Pharisees is like walking over an unmarked grave. Because following the Pharisees makes you sin against God, makes you unclean, without you even being aware of it. Now I want to talk about us for a minute. This is by far my biggest fear for you in this room. Because it is so easy to think that you are following Jesus, but really be following after religion. Even as a Christian, even someone who knows the gospel, if I quiz you on the gospel story, you could say it, you could give me the impact definition of sin, you could give me the impact stories of what you tell little kids at impact camp, but if you really got down to it, many people probably in this room, are living out a religion, not living out the gospel. This is my biggest fear for us. So the question is, why should we believe? What sets Christianity apart from every other religion? It's this. It's the difference of grace. The difference of grace. Religion says this. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. That is religion. But the problem is that so many of us as Christians still live out the gospel like that. You think that because you obey, you are more accepted by God because of your obedience. And not because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. That's religion. Gospel. Next slide. Gospel. I'm accepted by God through what Christ has done. Therefore, 
I obey. The whole difference here is motivation. The whole difference here is motive. What is motivating you to obey? And so what I want to do is I want to close out with several questions. Um, I once again went to Facebook and posted just, what are some questions that you guys know about that, um, that get you thinking about your motives, get you thinking about uh, reasons why you live out the way that you live out your life? And here's what some came up with. The first one was this. Do you obey God out of fear that you'll lose His blessing? Ever find yourself obeying God out of fear that you're going to lose something, lose some standing with Him? Um, recently, I was reminded of this. I haven't really flown in an airplane in a while, but um, whenever I am flying somewhere, uh, do you guys ever have like a freak-out moment when you're about to get on a plane? Just for like five seconds. You just go, what am I doing? Right? And you're kind of like, I'm about to get into an aluminum tube and be six miles up in the air. That, that just sounds crazy. And so, when I was a kid, if I was about to board a plane, I would have this moment where I'd be like, okay, did I have any unknown sin today? Um, Is God going to strike this plane down because I'm on it? Like, I'm serious. I would have these crazy thoughts about, and I know it's totally anti-gospel, but I would still have these fears of like, is God going to kill me today? Because of something I did that was sinful, that I'm even unaware of? It's sick and twisted, I know, but that's where my mind would go. And so do you have these, these fears? Do you feel like God's going to take away blessing from you, take away his relationship from you based on your obedience? Do you obey out of fear? The second one is this. Do you feel morally superior to other people? Are you someone who... Um, now, no one ever admits this. No one, if I ask you the question, you never would say, yeah... I always feel more or less superior to other people. That's just the kind of guy I am. Most don't admit that, but you live out this attitude of, oh, that's those people over there? Oh, yeah, I know what they're about. I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm a little bit more superior than them. And it's in your attitude towards those people. You, you, you feel like you're morally superior to what they're like. When I was in high school, um... I would say my biggest sin is, is the sins of the Pharisees, self-righteousness, thinking that I'm better than someone else. I'm morally superior to someone else. When I was in high school, um, I had this attitude. I was a Christian trying to follow Christ, but I was the guy who was like the like morality police. Okay, I was like the guy who um, could be a jerk to people and be really angry about sin in someone else's life while neglecting to admit my own sin. I had friends that were, you know, getting involved with people sexually and stuff, and there was this attitude in me like, oh, well, I'm not like that. I'm better than you. I, I don't struggle with, you know, it, it was just this, this ridiculous thinking about myself that I was better than someone else. Like I was more accepted by Christ because of my obedience than they were. And it was complete pharisaical way of thinking. Next question. When you do something sinful, do you try to do a good work to balance things out? Do you see life as like this scale where you're like, oh, I did that, I did that one thing that was bad and now I need to do, I need to go to church tomorrow and really cancel out that, that bad work that I did, that, that sin that I did. Do you see life as a scale? 
that sort of teeters on whether or not you are obeying God. Next question. Do you feel just as accepted by God when you have a bad day as when you have a good day? What I mean by that is this. You know the kind of day that you have that um, you get up late, you sleep in past your alarm, um, you don't do your quiet time, you yell at your mom, you curse your little brother, you, you just have a really, really bad start to your day. And then you think about your good day. You get up, you uh, read your Bible at 4.30 in the morning, you take like a three-hour prayer walk, um, you go down to, to downtown Temple and serve at Martha's Kitchen. Um, you just really do a lot, a lot of good works. Now, if you picture yourself approaching God at the end of each one of those days, do you see yourself as more accepted by God on the good day versus the bad day? If you do, you are seeing your good works as the reason why you're accepted by God and not the work that Christ has done in your life as the reason for your acceptance by God. Next question. Do you have difficulty admitting your weaknesses? Are you someone that when someone says, hey, you know what, like you really struggle with anger, and you might want to work on that, and you're like, I'm not an angry person, what are you talking about? I don't get defensive. What are you talking about? I'm not defensive. Like, is that you? Do you have trouble admitting when you're weak in certain areas? Do you have issues with that? If so, you might be trying to protect the outside of the cup. Making yourself look good before other people. Next question. Do you ever feel intimidated by someone else's spiritual accomplishments? When someone else says, when you hear about them going on a mission trip, do you feel like, oh man, like they're so spiritual, I'm so not spiritual. My summer's going to be spent like in South Padre and then going to Colorado and... And, you know, I just feel like I'm less than because they're doing all this good stuff. And do you see someone else? Are you intimidated by that in their life and how you might lack some of those things? Last question. When you suffer, do you get angry at God? Because here's, this is a really good one for for you guys, I think. When you suffer, do you get angry at God? Because if you do, it shows that you're living out religion and not the gospel. I'll explain what I mean by this. If you're someone who gets angry at God because of suffering, you're basically saying to God, I have lived in obedience to you, therefore I should not suffer. I have earned the right to take a pass on suffering. You see what I'm saying? Your reaction to suffering is one of the biggest indicators to if you're living out religion, or living out the gospel, because the gospel is that Jesus came and suffered for you. And so whenever you suffer, you count it as all joy, because you can know that through that suffering, you can grow closer to Him and depend on Him for every need in the midst of that suffering. So what's your reaction to suffering when you suffer? It it shows that you're living out the religion, Living out the gospel or just living out religion? You have one last question at your tables. When you're done with that, go ahead and close in prayer and you'll be dismissed after that.